Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to one of the most prominent pro-life leaders in the world. Uh, He's originally from New York, and he was ordained in 1988 by Cardinal John O'Connor. And Father Frank Bavone, many of you probably recognize his name, has served full-time in pro-life leadership since 1993. He is the National Director of Priests for Life, the largest pro-life ministry in the Catholic Church. He is the President of the National Pro-Life Religious Council. He is the National Pastoral Director of the Silent No More Awareness Campaign and of Rachel's Vineyard, the world's largest ministry dealing with healing after abortions. He travels throughout the United States to an average of four states a week, preaching and teaching against abortion. He was asked by Mother Teresa to speak in India on life issues. He's addressed the pro-life caucus of the United States House of Representatives. He was present at the bedside of Terry Schiavo as she was dying. Uh, Those of you who have been listening along with this podcast will remember that we did an interview with Terry Schiavo's brother, Bobby Schindler, several months ago. And he was an outspoken advocate for Terry Schiavo's life during that horrible story and as it was unfolding. He is the author of four books, Ending Abortion, Not Just Fighting for It, Pro-Life Reflections for Every Day, Abolishing Abortion, and Proclaiming the Message of Life. As I'm sure you can tell, this is the uh, perspective of a Catholic priest on the abortion debate. Uh, I've read Father Frank Bavone's work for a long time, especially because he is an outspoken advocate of the use of abortion victim photography in the abortion debate. He has often said that America will only reject abortion when America sees abortion. And as you can tell, even from that short biography, he has met everybody there is to meet inside the pro-life movement. He has met uh, virtually every pro-life president of the last several decades. He has met regularly with President Donald Trump over the past couple of years. And I remember actually meeting him at Donald Trump's inauguration, uh, although I was quite a bit further back in the crowd. And later on, when I went with my friend from the Susan B. Anthony list up uh, closer towards the stage, I realized Father Frank Bavone and several other pro-life leaders were sitting in the bleachers right in front of the dais where the president gave his inaugural address. So I don't want to get into too many details because, of course, the purpose of this podcast is just to uh, hear some of the experiences and hear the life story and hear his insights into the pro-life movement from Father Frank Pavone. And so without further introduction from me, here is my conversation with the director of Priests for Life. All right, I'll jump right into it then. Very good. My first question, I guess, would be, when did you really become aware uh, of what abortion is? Well, I went to the March for Life in 1976. It was actually only the third annual March for Life because, of course, Roe v. Wade was in 73. I was a high school student, and uh, I had heard that my my town was having a bus uh, go down uh, to the march. And that is when, although I had heard about abortion before, I had even heard it in some uh, sermons at my uh, parish. But I, you know, I didn't give it much thought. And uh, But when I went to the March for Life, and I really began to appreciate, uh, in fact, it struck me very, very strongly how big of an issue this was, how many people there were, there were, there were that were concerned about it. 
and how vast and diverse the crowd was. And this continues to impress me and many others to this day, that the, the, the diversity of that crowd that represents the, the whole pro-life movement, religious diversity, ethnic diversity, diversity in age, uh, and even political affiliation. And it was just like an awakening. I said, I have to pay more attention to this issue. I need to get more involved in that movement. So that was in January of 1976. So what were your, your next steps? Because it's it's obviously been quite a journey from that first March for Life shortly after Roe v. Wade eradicated pro-life laws right across the country and to being where you are now, which is a high-profile high pro-life activist who's, you've more or less had your fingers in all sorts of activism over the past decades now. I, I certainly have. And, and what happened, it was a beautiful journey. Uh, I was very much um, involved in my studies. I, I would go above and beyond uh, in my coursework in school. I always loved my studies. And so I took the same approach to the abortion issue. I began reading about it. I began talking to people who were involved in the movement. I began getting involved right away in the local Right to Life group, which was in Westchester County, New York. So it was Westchester County Right to Life. They welcomed me with open arms, you know, seeing a, a high school senior getting involved. And, and I went to public school. You know, they were very excited right. and uh, they taught me a lot. So uh, I began to go to pro-life meetings, start to read and distribute pro-life literature and help with mailings, anything that the local pro-life groups wanted me to to do. Now, what happened was I went right into seminary after high school. So my involvement and my attention that I was giving to the pro-life uh, cause was nurtured, of course, by my college seminary training with the Salesians of Don Bosco. And uh, we, we continued going, actually, to the, the March for Life as seminarians. And I was just very, very, just, uh, I, I continued to become more confident in articulating the pro-life message, and it became clear to me pretty rapidly that this was the number one moral issue of our day. You know, the thought just was very clear that, you know, if we can't defend the basic right to life, then all the other rights that we have and that we uh, want to enjoy are, are also, also fall with it because we can't enjoy, you know, we can't enjoy the right to health care or education if, if we're dead. Right. So the, the, the thing about it is that, um, this awareness just continued to grow and, and I uh, just kept getting more and more involved. And so how did you end up, was, did you actually found Priests for Life or did you eventually just become the leader of Priests for Life? I became the the first full-time leader and but the way it happened was very interesting. This passion and and this attention that I was giving to the cause, this I I I describe it as an alarm going off in my in my mind and heart, continued to grow. I went to theological seminary at Dunwoody in New York and Cardinal John O'Connor uh, came to town right right before I entered Dunwoody, he became the Archbishop of New York. And so I spent my years of theological seminary under his leadership, which meant that he became a mentor to me, my principal mentor, in how to approach the abortion issue. For him, it was the number one issue as well. Right. He, he, you know, he even took some flack for that from his fellow bishops, and uh, but he was just, uh, uh, just very, very clear privately and publicly that this was the number one issue of our time. So under Cardinal O'Connor, I saw how he handled the, the whole problem. And then he announced 
1990-1991, he announced that he was founding the Sisters of Life, a religious community dedicated particularly to preserving the, the sanctity of life and fighting for the unborn. When he announced that, now I had already been, he, he ordained me in 1988, and then I was in the parish, uh, and I was preaching constantly on abortion, and I was fostering pro-life activities, and I saw the effect that my preaching had on the parish. It was, it was very positive. People were coming forward. They were re- responding to the message. And when the Cardinal announced the founding of the Sisters of Life, I thought right away, there ought to be something like this for priests, because I saw the effect of my own work in my own parish, and I thought, you know, if we could help priests throughout the country really focus on this issue and talk about it clearly, courageously, and compassionately, we're going to make some progress. Mm -hmm. So I went to the cardinal, and I inquired about this idea, and guess what he told me? He told me that there was a priest in San Francisco whose mother, having lost her husband, decided to become a religious sister and joined the first group of, of inquirers of the Sisters of Life. And he said, he put me in touch with this priest, and he said, that priest out there has the same idea. And in fact, he got something started called Priests for Life. So I connected with Father Lee Kaler. I joined the organization. I began working with him and the other priests. And um, that um, that was a fruitful relationship. Fast forward a couple of years, and I came to the conclusion in my, I I, I had a calling within a call. I had a call of conscience, as I describe it, where I, I came to the realization I cannot go on with life business as usual while this abortion holocaust is going on. I need to devote myself full time, all my energy to, to protecting the unborn from abortion. And, and it was like so crystal clear. It was as clear to me as my, my call to the priesthood itself has always been. So I went back to the cardinal and I said, Your Eminence, I need to request permission of you to do pro-life work full time. Now, between the time that I asked for that appointment and actually had the meeting, I got a phone call. And it was from Father Lee Kaler, who had started Priest for Life. And he was calling to tell me that he had accepted an assignment in the military uh, chaplaincy and therefore needed somebody to take over the leadership of Priests for Life. And it was like, my goodness, the timing it couldn't have been more perfect. So I said, I'm very happy to do that. And, in fact, I'm about to have a meeting with the Cardinal to see if I can do pro-life work full-time. And, and I'll let him know that, that this position is open to me. I could be the full-time director of Priests for Life. Right. So long story short, the Cardinal said, okay. And that was 1993, and I've been doing it ever since. So one, one of the things that, that's, that's interesting that I hear from a lot of people is there's this assumption out there in the secular culture uh, that people sitting in the benches of various parishes are hearing priests talk about abortion nonstop. In reality, the number of people who hear a- about abortion in church is very, very small. And so what you were doing when you were preaching, you know, clearly and articulately about abortion would have actually been the exception. I know people who sat in church for, for 15, 20 years without ever hearing the word mentioned. How does Priest for Life really enable people to, to ensure that that pro-life message is, is getting through right across uh, the country? Well, you know, people want the leadership of their clergy, and one of the people who expressed to me of the thousands and thousands who have done so over the years, 
that they were not hearing enough preaching about abortion was none other, other than the principal founder of the abortion uh, industry, Dr. Bernard Nathanson. I came to know him personally. Cardinal O'Connor was the one who ended up receiving him into the Catholic Church uh, after he became pro-life. He became pro-life first just based on science and then, then became, a, became a Catholic eventually. But Dr. Nathanson told me the same thing. He said, I never hear preaching about abortion from the pulpit. And he said, this is how we started the abortion industry. The only reason we got away with doing this is that the church was asleep. The church was quiet when she should have been shouting from the rooftops. So Dr. Nathanson was a, became a avid, avid supporter of Priests for Life. He says, because this is what we need to do. And, and, and so how do we help people to do that? We train the priests, first of all, and uh, I have seminars and I have a book, for example, that gives uh, pro-life homily hints for e all the readings of every single Sunday in the lectionary, all three cycles. And uh, we, we do one-on-one -on -one, uh, consultation with the priest. We're very visible out in the public square, and by our visibility as priests, that, of course, distinguishes uh, Priests for Life from, from, from the other pro-life organizations because you know, as various organizations nationally, you know, we're dealing with the very same issues. You know, if there's a particular piece of pro-life legislation that has to be supported, you know, we're all talking about the same bill. But the point is that we do it as priests, and when priests are speaking up in this way, people who are following their priests, people who are loving their faith, people who are in union with the church, this means a lot to them, and it strengthens them. It sort of gives them spiritual permission, if you will, to, to say, okay, I'm going to be more vocal about this too, starting in my church. And the priests, it gives them the, 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 the courage uh, and the tools to say, okay, I'm going to be addressing this too. And we hear constantly from priests and deacons. We have deacons for life, by the way, and also seminarians. We have seminarians for life. Uh, we hear from them all the time that, hey, you know, you're just you're being out there, just you're being outspoken and, and visible on this issue is giving us the confidence we need to be to be vocal about it ourselves. And and that's our that's our purpose, that's our mission. Not to mention, of course, directly training laity in the pro life cause. We do that too by teaching actually we teach a pro life spirituality, how the faith leads us to defend the unborn and how our defense of the unborn leads us back to the truths of our faith. We do a lot of of teaching and training of that particular theme. Uh, and so Priest for Life is serving the priests, but as priests, we're also serving the laity, uh, all for the very focused purpose of ending abortion. So when you look back at the last couple of decades uh, from, you know, your, your journey into Priest for Life and then, you know, starting pro-life work full time, what are some of the stories and the moments that really stand out to you? We, we've had a lot of pro-life leaders uh, on this podcast over the past several months, everybody from, you know, Joe Scheidler, Monica Miller, all people you would know very well. Uh, most people, yeah. most of the ones I'd mentioned, um, you're, you've, you've been friends with for longer than I've been alive. And they all have these these moments in pro-life work, which can often be a very surreal thing to be involved in. People who haven't worked inside the movement don't really understand the the sheer bizarre nature of being in a life and death struggle, the situations that you find yourself in, the conversations that you end up happening. You, you sometimes feel like you're watching yourself outside of yourself uh, in some of these situations. What would some of those experiences uh, over the past several decades, what, what have some of those experiences been for you? 
Yes, that's a beautiful question because it's so true of all of us that are are in this uh, movement, not only as national leaders, but I'm sure many of your listeners who do pro-life work for a, a good portion of their time, if not full-time, uh, it, it resonate with that very same thing that you just said. Uh, for example, one of those one of those experiences for me was uh, the uh, meeting Norma McCorvey, the Jane Roe of Roe v. Wade, right. whom eventually... I became not only good friends with, but I, I had the privilege of receiving her into the Catholic Church, giving her the sacrament of confirmation and uh, and Holy Communion, and just you know here she is now, the, the technically the winner of this uh, case that legalizes abortion, rejecting abortion and rejecting the case. So Norma and I became good friends. We we worked together the rest of her life. She passed away just a few years ago, and the rest of her life she she worked to dedicating herself to overturning this decision. Um, just the, the, the interaction with her, the first time we sat down to talk, I said, so you're the Jane Roe of Roe v. Wade. And she said, no, Father. She said, I was the Jane Roe of Roe v. Wade. Right. I am now Roe no more. Uh, and of course, receiving her into the fullness of the church was such a joy. I remember another time offering Mass in the very room of a former abortion clinic in the very room where the procedures were were done and um, realizing at that moment taking the holy eucharist consecrating the eucharist and saying this is my body given up for you and i realized that right there in that room people who said this is my body i can have an abortion we're doing just the opposite of what Jesus does in the Eucharist. Instead of, instead of giving their body away so that the child might have life, as Jesus gives his body away that we might have life, they were clinging to their rights over their own body and, and, and bringing death to the child. And as I held the chalice and said, this is the, the, the chalice of my blood, I realized in that very room, you know, the very floor and the walls uh, where I was standing had been stained with the blood of these children. It was one of the most awesome, awesome experiences. Uh, this was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. There is a, um, a Holocaust memorial to the unborn there. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Rick Mahoney, great great pro-life uh, advocate there, uh, runs that particular place. And that was another one of the, the great experiences. And, of course, knowing Mother Teresa and knowing John Paul II, I had the privilege of interacting with them frequently. And just my conversations with them about abortion, my conversations with them about pro-life, uh, just left a, such a lasting impact on me. I uh, remember telling Mother Teresa about the law that, that President Bill Clinton had signed, the FACE Act, as it's called. Mm -hmm. This is what makes it uh, 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 a crime for somebody to peacefully, peacefully blockade an abortion facility. And... Um, you know, I was explaining this, this law to Mother Teresa, and, you know, you can't physically intimidate anybody or pull them away from the abortion center. And you know what she said to me? And this was only about, I was sitting down with her in, in Calcutta. This was only about a month after this bill had been signed into law. Right. And she said, Father, she said, if we had that law here in India, I would have been arrested many times. Because I go to these places, and I take the women by the arm, and I pull them away. And I say, come to us, our sisters and I will give hope and help to you and your child. I mean, moments like this, you know, unforgettable moments that give such a, an insight and such a lesson into the, you know, as I mentioned before, pro-life spirituality. 
and such a lesson into the the uh, the greatness of some of these pro-life saints that we have had the privilege of seeing in our lifetime. What was it like uh, talking to Pope John Paul II about abortion? It's sort of interesting because in historical <clears throat> in historical retrospect, from somebody my age. Um, we would look at him as one of one of the key leaders who, who who ended who helped end communism in Europe. He's often credited by major historians with you know alongside Thatcher and Reagan of being one of the key bulwarks against communism. So, what was it like to have a conversation with him about abortion? It was so encouraging. Uh, it was like having. Uh, a, a mini pro-life rally is, is the way I, I always experienced it. Because I, I had the occasion to do this numerous times because I worked, I was asked to work over at the Vatican. I was still heading up Priest for Life. But from 1997 to 1999, I was asked to help out at the Pontifical Council for the Family. Now that is, now of course, that there's been restructuring done over there in Rome. But that at that time was the office where uh that 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 handled the pro life issues for the church and 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 fostered the pro life activities of the church worldwide. Uh and so in that capacity I would be a, either at mass uh in John Paul's uh, private chapel with an opportunity to greet him after the mass or have him uh, come over to our offices and and meet with us when especially when we had guests uh leaders in from other parts of the world. And, and so these opportunities would come come around, oh, I would say every six weeks or so. And I, in talking with him, realized, and, and these were, by the way, in the years right after he issued Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life, right. that great encyclical, which, by the way, in March of 2020 is its 25th anniversary. So it, it's, it's worth our, our renewed attention to this. Really, it's a Magna Carta for the pro-life movement, as you know. And this document he considered to be, uh, one of the most important documents of his pontificate. And as we know, he wrote an awful lot. He wrote a treasure chest mm-hmm. full of documents. And, and But this he considered among the most important, because to him, uh, and he said it very clearly, this was the most important issue. Like I said earlier about Cardinal O'Connor, I mean, these church leaders understood, and they articulated, that if we do not defend a person's right to life, then here's what happens. And and John Paul said this in his document, and and we talked about this. What happens is that the very foundations of the state begin to disintegrate. Everything else that we say about human rights, about democracy, about freedom, everything else collapses because you're building it on quicksand, and and you no longer have a human community to speak of. So, you know, I kind of smile to myself, and, 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 you know, when people say to, to us, oh, well, you know, abortion is just one of many issues. Right. I say, oh, you know, how little you understand about this. This is not an, just an issue at all. This is the foundation of every issue. And so my conversations with him, he was, first of all, profoundly encouraging. You know, he would, I mean, you would talk to him and, and you come away feeling like you're on top of the world. You know, they just, just by the encouragement he gives. I remember the first time I talked to him about Priests for Life and he said, God bless you and you're, you're apostolate for life. And he said it just like that, for life. And, right. and, 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 you know, he, he didn't take this as just a, you know, an intellectual conceptual thing, although he could, you know, write and preach and teach about all the, the, the intellectual aspects of this. It was so clearly a passion for him. And, and that's what I, what I learned the most. I mean, we can read his readings, and, 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 but it was the passion. Uh, this is something we must fight for, we must give our lives for, uh, and he was so, so clear about that. It was very inspiring. 
So on one hand, you have all these these pro-life heroes that you not only met but had friendships with. So the ones you just mentioned, Norma McCorvey, Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who, of course, used to uh, be an abortionist himself. On the other side of the fence, uh, when it comes to people that you faced uh, opposition from, uh, what has that been like over the years? Because as any pro-life activist will know, uh, some of the like the opposition that we face is 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 it's it's quite unhinged, um, and and it it's frequent frequently violent, probably more so in Canada than in the United States. Uh, but there's there's yes. th- there's that side of things too. What has that experience been like for you over your decades long career? You know, I, I I the first thing that comes to mind in that regard was in in two thousand and one, after the uh, inauguration of George W. Bush. After that bitterly contested and close, razor close election of 2000, uh, and, and an election that, you know, as all these presidential elections do, had great consequences for the pro-life cause. The National Right to Life Committee was kind enough to give me their proudly pro-life award, and, and they used to have the awards ceremony at the uh, Waldorf Astoria in New York. And they gave me the award because, you know, we had worked closely with them to elect George W. Bush and uh, did a lot in that regard. Um, and they realized, as we talked about before, the, you know, the, the impact that it has when a priest says vote pro-life, because a lot of priests are so, so hesitant to talk about politics. So I, 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 I accepted this award. And at that um, uh, event, NARAL, Planned Parenthood, Catholics for Choice, and a state legislator uh, of New York by the name of Schneiderman, who eventually became attorney general, all conspired together uh, to have a rally and a protest outside the Waldorf directed at not only at National Right to Life, but at me personally. And they were, they were of course, bitterly angry that George W. Bush had been elected. Um, uh, just as the, the anti-Trump people now are still so bitter about the 2016 election. But they also, and this is one of the things we learn about, you know, being opposed by these people publicly, as your question is getting at. It, it, it's incredible how people, how frequently people commit the sin of rash judgment. They were saying about me that I was encouraging violence. Now, we at Priests for Life have actually offered over the years cash rewards for people leading to uh, leading to, to helpful information for law enforcement to stop those who would do violence against abortion practitioners because right. we don't we don't believe right. in violence and and yet when I w- when I would say things like well you know the pro choice idea really is the violent idea, because you're saying that sometimes it's okay to choose to end a life to solve a problem. We reject that, and therefore you can't choose to end a life to solve a problem by shooting an abortionist either. They twisted my words as really I could not imagine more skill in twisting someone's words. They, 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 they ended up saying that I was thereby promoting violence. And it's like, where in the world is this, is this coming from? Right. You know, the, the, um, uh, and that's the sadness of it. I mean, you know, having a protest with your name on signs, you know, it's kind, actually, it's kind of amusing, you know, and I actually have had at that event and at a number of other events, I've had to have bodyguards and, 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 you know, uh, uh, law enforcement officers 
being near me and 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 protection, et cetera, et cetera. I've had death threats, as so many of these these other leaders that you mentioned uh, have had as well. It's it's not you know anything. It's it's part of the territory. It goes with the territory. But you know the sadness of it all is how somebody can be so disingenuous, so utterly lacking respect for a for a person to to take their words and to twist them and to be so so judgmental it's like look if you disagree with me even passionately you know let's 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 talk the issue out let's debate the issue using the the means that our society gives us to debate public policy but you know and here's the saddest thing you talk about the different opposition there have been many other examples of of this but the saddest is when the opposition comes from within the church and and when those who are you know within the, the family of the church either they don't appreciate the kinds of things that John Paul said or that Cardinal O'Connor said or uh two other key mentors of mine Mother Angelica and Father Benedict Groschel I learned so much from them both that you know all of these people were saying the same thing about this this whole right to life uh, issue you know, we have some in the church that just are not on the same page. And again, listen, you want to have a dispute, you know, you have a disagreement, state your case. But they don't state their case. They try character assassination. They try, you know, rash judgment and, yep. you know, backstabbing and, you know, uh, uh, all kinds of lies and distortions about people. And this is where I, I think I, I, I safely speak for many, many in the pro-life leadership uh, when I say that these kinds of attacks from w- people who should be cheering us on are the saddest of all. So when you look at it, what's, what's been interesting about Priests for Life is in addition to the training, the clergy training, all of the things that you've been involved in, you've also been quite heavily involved in politics. What has that that been like? We'll get to uh, the Trump administration specifically in a moment, but what is what has your involvement in politics been like? And what are some of the experiences that really stick out to you from that involvement? Because uh, doing pro-life work in the political sphere can be one of the most rewarding, but also the most perpetually frustrating places to be doing pro-life work. You know, it's it's I, I find it very it takes a lot of patience uh, but your patience with the political process is greatly enhanced simply by understanding better how the mechanisms of government work. Uh, and I have just been so really exhilarated and honored by it because you look at the people who serve in public office. You know, we've got so many. One of the things that, that, that our, our listeners often do not see and, and the general public often does not see is how many Christian believers are in public office right now in, in the United States. Let's just take the United States Congress. And the reason that people don't have an accurate sense of how many there are and how committed they are is that they don't make the news. The news focuses on a handful of, you know, loudmouths and liberals and troublemakers and, and whatnot. But when you look at all of the 535 members of our U.S. House of Representatives and, and Senate, you have got some of the most faithful, devoted disciples of Jesus Christ that you can ever find, and pro-life as, as, as you and I are. It's inspiring, therefore, number one, to just meet and interact with these people face-to-face, and, and it's, it's seeing their dedication and the stuff they have to deal with. Oh, my goodness, the opposition they have to deal with. And just, you know, the respect I have for them is such that, too, when you realize uh, what they have to do, it, 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 you know, they're fighting for a piece of legislation, 
And then, you know, things can change in, in the span of five minutes when all of a sudden they have to now devote their full force attention to another issue that has arisen or some conflict that needs to be resolved uh, among the members of the, of the Congress. And it's like it really requires a level of adaptability, flexibility, and, and energy that is that is really, it's awe-inspiring. So I'm inspired by the people. I mean, the individuals, I've had the pleasure of meeting George W. Bush a number of times and, and also speaking with him about the, this whole issue. And, you know, he too was passionate about right. Uh, the right to life. Um, and so, the, the, the and, and of course, the joy of, you know, being able to see you know, what I love so much is, you know, the messages I've gotten over the years from people who have said, you know, Father, your, your sermon or your, your, your brochure helped me to make my voting decision and to vote pro-life. I was going to vote the other way, but you helped me to vote pro-life. Or people who say, I remember one, one email, for example, of a person who said, you know, Father, I heard your, your election sermons and the voting day came and it was raining. And I had car trouble, and I was delayed, and I ran into one obstacle after another, but I kept hearing your message, and I got myself to that voting booth before the end of the day, and I cast my vote proudly. This is freedom. This is, this is freedom, and, and it's, it's political freedom, and it's political participation, and the way I look at it is, you know what? This is also the Great Commission. This is exactly what Jesus has asked us to do, to make disciples of all the nations and teach them to carry out everything I have commanded you. That doesn't just mean to baptize people. That means to change the laws and policies of a country so that you can help people do what the Lord wants and not do what he hates, which is the shedding of innocent blood. And, and it just it, 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 the whole thing, it's exhilarating. But as I said, too, people have to be patient because you have to know how government works you know in our in our senate for example a majority is not enough to get a pro life bill passed you have to have a supermajority because the minority can block it if you don't have 60 votes so you know people say oh the republicans are in the majority how come they didn't pass this bill or that bill or the other bill well because they really i mean majority yes but supermajority no and so understanding things like that can help people you know persevere in this work and have the patience that's required to get to the final goal. And that, that brings us to the, this past election, which, of course, was was a very polarizing election. I will admit that in the lead up to the election, when the choice was Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, it seemed pretty clear. But I was also quite used to politicians who weren't particularly pro-life, like uh, the late Senator John McCain, um, who you yeah. know had once attacked George Bush for being pro-life, but then conveniently came to that position when when he was up against Barack Obama. And and you know, I, I have seen personally seen hundreds of people change their mind on the abortion issue. So far be it from me to say people can't change their minds. It just seems rather convenient that many Republican politicians sort of have their pro-life conversion on the road to D.C. And so thus, I was quite suspicious of Donald Trump's claim uh, that he was pro-life. And and yet, since his administration has launched, whether it's people inside his administration, whether it's Trump himself, 
it's it's extraordinary the number of things uh, that he's been willing to do, that he's been willing to push. We had Austin Ruse of CFAM on the podcast. He said the things the Trump administration is doing at the UN level on this issue are exceptional. And I remember watching uh, one of your videos just prior to the election, and and you were campaigning fairly hard for him at the time. So what has this been like for you to to see, one, to see that pay off, and two, um, how, how have you been able to work with the administration on pro-life initiatives? Because when I was at the Trump inauguration, I had an invitation from the SBA list. Uh, I actually bumped into you, uh, and you were you were sitting with a bunch of pro-life leaders quite near quite near the dais where Trump was giving his inaugural address. So I know you've worked quite extensively with them, and I was wondering if you could share some of some of that with our listeners. Thank you for that question. It's exhilarating. He is the most pro-life president we've ever had. I've gotten to talk to him personally on at least five occasions, and my close associate, Alveda King, who you know is uh, on our Priest for Life team, uh, likewise meets with him uh, regularly because uh, both she and I belong to different advisory commissions uh, that the administration has set up. So we do have the chances to interact with the president and to interact even more, of course, with the people who are, are on his inner team and, and, and work with him every day. And I can tell you unequivocally, as, as Elvita can as well, this man truly personally believes in and is committed to what we are committed to, protecting children from the violence of abortion. He sees it, he realizes it, he knows it, and he's doing it. You know, it's not simply the words, although I should say, first of all, the way he talks about it has helped the pro-life movement immensely, because he talks about it in ways that even pro-life presidents in the past haven't quite brought themselves to to talk about it. And it's the directness that it encourages pro-life people because, you know, we see from, from our, uh, so many politicians and we even see from, from so many church leaders this evasiveness, you know, they don't want to really hit the nail on the head. We're killing babies here, you know, and we've got to stop it. And, and the president talks that way and that by itself is a tremendous encouragement. Secondly, as Austin has pointed out and, and other pro-life leaders will, will affirm as well. He has done exactly what one of his close advisors told me he would do during the campaign when the advisor said to me, if he's elected, he will do everything past pro-life presidents have done and more. Now, we are seeing every single day this and more being fulfilled. For example, he doesn't just reinstate the Mexico City policy. He expands it. He doesn't just say, well, we don't want federal tax money to go for abortion. He closed up the loophole, for example, in the Title X funding that, you know, that, that the idea shouldn't go for abortion was already in the law. And he looked at it and he said, well, this is not being enforced. And so he made a, a, a tightening up of that, which was upheld in the courts so far. Uh, he not only talks about religious freedom, he actually established an office of conscience and religious freedom within the, the Department of HHS. And it's like he's doing, he's doing new things all the time to actually advance these things in which we believe. I, I need to tell our listeners, believe me, even if you follow these things, there's more to this than you have heard. There is so much way. We even have trouble working on this full time, keeping up with all the advances and the progress that's being made. It's an immense amount of, 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 uh, of information. And I want to urge people, go to the horse's mouth. Watch the president's rallies. 
go to the White House website, go to the, 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 the websites of these, you know, they're not hard to find. You look up, for example, the Department of HHS, Health and Human Services. You know, they, they send out, they send out press releases. They tell, tell people what's going on. And it's just all so encouraging because all the things we worked hard for in these elections are paying off. And it makes us more motivated to work hard in the future elections as well. So you've talked to him personally. What is your sense of where his passion derives from? Because when, uh, for example, when you mentioned the way he talks about it, when he talks about uh, a baby being ripped from the womb of its mother, I know that when he said that in his debate with Hillary Clinton, that was the moment that quite a few pro-life leaders pinpointed as the moment when they said, okay, he gets it. Um, And that's when a lot of people went from being very lukewarm on him uh, to being far more overtly supportive. But you've had a chance to actually talk to him. You've talked to uh, probably thousands of people on this issue. So you have a pretty good sense of how people came to their position. What's your sense of why the president is so passionate about the abortion issue? Well, there's a few things going on. I mean, he has told the story publicly himself that he had a friend who um was uh, his his uh, the wife was pregnant and he he the, the the husband was very much in favor of of getting the child aborted she resisted and now he he saw the birth of this child and how much this child now means to these parents and when he sees his friend you know his friend says to him hey can you imagine you know if i had if i had gone through with what i wanted to do and so there was this personal um connection in the president's life uh well well before he became president that that turned him around on on this issue um but what's also going on is that you know he's he's smart enough to know what he doesn't know and to surround himself with the people who do know so that they can guide him and lead him. And so the pro-life people that he has put around him in this administration, starting, of course, with our, our great Vice President Mike Pence, people like Kellyanne Conway, Dr. Ben Carson, and, and so many others in the administration, uh, they are also, you know, it's a, his personal his personal position is truly pro-life. And, and again, that personal story helped him to change. But his professional public policy position uh, has been reinforced by by the folks on his team to whom he listens. I was part of a pro life advisory commission, which is now uh, being being formed again. Uh, it was formed for the, his first election, and it's now being formed for his reelection. And he, I can tell you, he really listens. He listens to the advice of those who know this issue inside out. And, and this is one of the reasons for his success in, in, in so many different arenas. Uh, he knows how to, he knows how to take advice. And, and the thing about it is that he sees it is consistent. He's a man who, well, again, I urge people listen to his rally speeches because he understands what freedom is. He understands the great principles on which America was founded. He understands the Declaration of Independence and the concept of God-given rights. And it just clicks with him. It says, yeah, this makes sense. The right to life is first. It's given by God, not government. And so it fits in so well with the whole structure, not only of American thinking, but also of, of, of the thinking of the Republican Party, in which he finds so much support that, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't put government in, in place of God. You don't put bureaucracy in place of family. Uh, you, you, you don't put, uh, the law above, you know, your faith and, and so on and so forth. It's consistent with all of this. The pro-life position to him, 
uh, makes more and more sense each day, I would say, and as it should for, for all of us. The final question I'll ask you is a, is a speculative question, but you're close enough to a lot of the proceedings to, to probably have a fairly well-informed opinion on this. If Roe v. Wade comes up soon at the Supreme Court, do you think that we have the votes to overturn it or not? Do you think that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Roberts uh, are going to vote to overturn Roe v. Wade, or do you think that we need one more Supreme Court justice uh, on the court before we have any sort of uh, any sort of confidence that we can actually return this thing to the states finally? You know, this is a uh, this is a very good question and one that's on the minds of many people. Uh, we do have vote the votes right now to seriously continue modifying Roe v. Wade. Now, that's not to say that the justices on the court now aren't of the mind that Roe v. Wade should be reversed and corrected. It's the way they want to do it. It's the way that they see most uh, prudent to do it. Various cases are coming before the court that can seriously modify Roe v. Wade. Uh, uh, for example, Justice Thomas, by the way, I, I, I would urge people that follow these things more closely to look at some of the recent opinions that Justice Clarence Thomas has written out of the court, because he has, first of all, reminded everyone that the court's previous decisions are not dogma. You know, when we look in our in our Catholic faith, dogma doesn't change, it cannot change. Supreme Court decisions, even that have been precedent for a long time, are not in in that category. He says if a decision was wrongly decided a long time ago, the passage of time doesn't change the fact that, you know, we need to correct the error because we gotta we gotta compare it to the Constitution. And he says the Constitution is silent on abortion. Right. But this doesn't mean that the court is going, even if we got another justice, which of course, I mean, it's inevitable that we eventually will, and I hope it's under President Trump, I think it will be. But here's the thing, even if we got another pro-life justice, and he will only appoint pro-life justices, that doesn't mean they're going to reverse Roe v. Wade right away. What it means is they will do things like, for example, these laws that are, are, are protecting babies from dismemberment abortion. You know, Justice Thomas recently, again, mentioned, we can't avoid this issue forever. We've got to, because the Supreme Court declined to hear a case coming out of Alabama on these dismemberment bills. But they're going to want to do things like this first. They're going to want to look at these dismemberment bills, and they're going to want to say, look, where in the Constitution does it say that a state cannot protect children from dismemberment abortions? It's nowhere in the Constitution. It's ridiculous to think that it is. And therefore, we are going to say that laws that states pass in this regard are perfectly constitutional. Uh, and then it won't stop there, because then, of course, it raises other questions about about uh, other forms of, of abortion. And so uh, the, I would say this, that the justices on the court right now that are pro-life, and they are in the majority, are going to take a, a, a um, uh, they're going to take a, um, a position here that says, look, we are not the lawmakers. The Congress makes the laws. We don't want to impose social policy, so we're going to take the cases that come before us, and we're going to judge whether or not they're in line with the Constitution. And step by step, they're going to continue to dismantle Roe, as the court has done in large measure already. Uh, and we're going to just see that progress accelerate, and I think that's how it's going to happen. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss all this with us. 
It has been a joy. Jonathan, thank you for your good work. And, and uh, uh, I want all your listeners to know that we are at their service as we are at your service. And we are praying for them. And, uh, you know, I hope that we can connect with all of them online. Uh, endabortion.us is our main website. And I just want to thank you for having me on today. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with the director of Priests for Life, Father Frank Pavone. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. We hope that you'll head over to LifeSiteNews.com and check out past episodes of the podcast or subscribe to listen to future episodes of the podcast. We can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Pippa, all of your podcast platforms. You can find us there. So thanks so much for joining us, and we hope that you'll join us again soon.